Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 361st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I'm brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Welcome back. You've been missed, Erica. Glad to be back. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about the recent initiative by the National Committee for Vital Health Statistics. That committee is urging CMS to make adoption of ICD-11 less of a problem than it was when the country went from I-9 to I-10. Remember those times? I do, and that would be good if they would make it less of a problem, Chuck. Indeed, it would be. Reporting our lead story this morning is going to be Margaret Skurka. She is a representative of the World Health Organization's Committee on the Family of International Classification, Education, and Implementation. Impressive. That is impressive. And speaking of impressive, Terry Fletcher returns to the broadcast. She has a report on virtual office visits. And Lori Johnson is here this morning to report on chronic kidney disease. And you have a report later in the broadcast. What are you going to be reporting about? I'm going to share some observations from last week's National Physician Advisor Conference, NPAC. Ah, very good. Looking forward to hearing about that. We have much news to report during today's Talk 10 Tuesday, and we begin with news about the AMA editorial board and the new E&M changes. With that report, we go to the Talk 10 Tuesday news desk where Dr. Jeffrey Learman is standing by. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to register for an important webcast, CDI in the ED, Lessons Learned from ED Physician. It's this Thursday, March 21st at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Save $25 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is Dr. Jeffrey Learman. Thanks, Chuck. At the February 2019 AMA CPT panel meeting, there were multiple panel actions taken that will have a significant impact on how we code for office and outpatient evaluation and management services. These are our CPT codes 99201 through 99205 and 99211 through 99215. These changes are published in the AMA CPT editorial summary on the AMA website, and these changes take effect January 1, 2021. There are two stipulations to what I'm going to share today. The first is that the exact CPT language and code descriptors will not be final until just prior to release of the code set, and there is more specific information that may be shared through panel actions and released prior to the publication of the new code set. However, Even with those stipulations, there are certain things we know for certain based on the publicly reported panel action. The first is that the panel voted to delete CPT 99201. This is, of course, our level one new patient E&M service. This code will no longer exist as of January 1, 2021. This isn't just for one certain payer or one part of the country or just Medicare or anything like that. This code will be deleted from CPT and will no longer exist. And then we come to what I think is the most significant change that's gonna go into effect January 1, 2021, and that is the way we select our E&M level 
for office and outpatient E&M services is going to change dramatically, again, starting January 1, 2021. Right now, we use the three key elements of E&M coding to select our code level. Those three key elements being history, exam, and decision-making. And of course, for a new patient, we have to meet the thresholds of all three, history, exam, and decision-making. For an established patient, we need to meet the thresholds of two out of the three, history, exam, and decision-making. And alternatively, time can be used if counseling and coordinate dominate the encounter. Well, that's changing. Starting January 1, 2021, we will still have to perform a history and or an exam in order to report office and outpatient E&M services. However, history and exam will no longer play a role in code selection. Instead, our code level will be based on either the level of medical decision-making only or total time only. So no more counting up bullets of history of present illness, no more quantifying exam bullets, no more counting up how many systems are reviewed. Effective January 1, 2021, we will make that decision on level based on one of those two options only. And notice I said total time. The final change I'll share is starting 1121. When quantifying time, we will now count total time spent on that day for that encounter. So fortunately, we have a year to digest these changes, provide the appropriate training, and be ready to go January 1, 2021. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Lerman. That was Dr. Jeffrey Lerman. Dr. Lerman is a certified professional coder, and he operates Lerman Consulting, LLC, through which he provides consulting services regarding coding, compliance, and documentation. It's Tuesday, it's March 19th, 2019, and you're listening to the 361st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Here's a special offer from ICD University. You're invited to a free three-day trial of the new ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast portal. Check out the exciting new portal and discover all the essential educational webcasts at your fingertips. During this three-day free trial, we encourage you to explore the wide range of specially curated content delivered by top healthcare industry experts. No credit card is needed. The trial is free. The experience, priceless. Here's what you can expect from your subscription to the ICD-10 Monitor webcast portal. Educational content from top healthcare industry experts, access to more than 50 webcasts per year, and 24-7 remote access from any device, anytime, anywhere. For more information, click on the Handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday. World Kidney Day was celebrated last Wednesday, and joining us now with more information about chronic kidney disease, its complications, and the coding of this chronic condition is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica. Yes, March 14th was World Kidney Day. Chronic kidney disease, or CKD, affects 15% of United States adults, or 37 million people, according to a recent statement by the Centers for Disease Control. CKD is more common in people 65 and older than other adult groups. CKD is more common in women. CKD is more common in African Americans than other ethnicities. The risk factors for CKD include diabetes and hypertension. Those are the two major risk factors. 
and also patients that have heart disease, obesity, family history of CKD, prior kidney damage, and are of older age. Those are additional risk factors. CKD damages the kidneys over time so that the kidneys can no longer clean the blood as they should. The result is that waste and extra water accumulates in the body and other health problems occur. CKD has five stages, end-stage renal disease and end-stage renal disease, or ESRD. The complications of CKD include early death, heart disease, stroke, anemia, low blood calcium, high potassium, low or loss of appetite, extra fluid in the body, infections, and depression. The CDC recommends that these steps are taken to prevent CKD. Control your blood pressure, control high blood sugar levels, maintain a healthy body weight, eat a balanced diet, and participate in physical activity. So let's talk about the codes. CKD has a number of codes, and they begin at N18.1 and continue to N18.6, which is for end-stage renal disease, and then we have a code N18.9, which is for an unspecified stage. From a clinical documentation integrity perspective, the coder um, may, or the, the CDI specialist may inquire about the stage um, for the chronic kidney disease. The stage will also impact whether the patient has an additional HCC. Stages 3 through end-stage renal disease are HCCs. If the patient has hypertension with their CKD, the code is based on the CKD stage. I-12.0 with N18.5 or N18.6 is hypertension with stage 5 or end-stage renal disease. I-12.9 with N18.1 or N8 through N18.4 represents hypertension with CKD stage 1 through 4. CKD with chronic heart disease and hypertension has another set of codes. They are in the category of I-13. I-13.0 represents CKD with hypertension and heart failure, and the CKD is in stage 1 to 4, or it is unspecified. I-13.10 is without heart failure, CKD stage 1 to 4 and unspecified. I-13.11 is without is hypertension without heart failure and CKD stage 5 or end stage renal disease. I13.2 is with heart failure and CKD stage 5 or end stage renal disease. And it's also noted in the tabular that we should use an additional code from the category N18 to indicate the specific stage. Complications of a kidney transplant are found in the subcategory of T86.1, and we should pay attention to those instructional notes at the category level. One of the possibilities with chronic kidney disease is that the patient could have a transplant. So if the patient has a history of a kidney transplant, assign Z94.0. 
while most transplant statuses are HCCs, Z94.0 is only an RX HCC, not a CMS HCC. And with that, I will turn it back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Lori Johnson. Today, our Tuesday focus is about virtual check-ins. That's the new CMS Communications Technology-Based Payable Service. Reporting this very important story is nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Nice to have you here with us, virtually speaking. Pardon the pun. (laughs) Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. So according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the average number of annual visits to a doctor's office has declined since 2001, a trend that is only strengthened by new online services offering virtual care to patients who do not have time to see their personal doctor and are in need of a fast remedy. However, the catch is that many of these services connect patients with a doctor they have never met before and who does not know their background or medical history, which can hinder the quality of care. However, for medical practices to remain competitive, grow revenue, and maintain established relationships with their patients, it is imperative physicians begin to consider how to incorporate telemedicine services into their practices and provide patients with the option for treatment through virtual care. I would suggest starting with the established patient. Here are five reasons why integrating telemedicine into a medical practice benefits both the physician and their patients. Increased patient satisfaction. It has been proven that patients are far more likely to be satisfied with a virtual appointment when it is administered with a doctor they know and trust. According to a recent Kaiser Permanente survey, 93% of patients who use telemedicine to meet with their personal doctor have had a positive experience that meets their healthcare needs. By offering telemedicine services in addition to an in-office care, patients are more satisfied and more likely to remain loyal to their doctor. Patient satisfaction surveys suggest patients not only want this benefit, but will require it of their doctor at some point. Provides a a convenient solution for more than just the patient. New technology is creating safer and more effective platforms for patients to comfortably and conveniently talk with their doctor on a personal device, such as a smartphone or a computer. The video conferencing capability that comes with virtual care also allows for multiple people, including long-distance family members, caretakers, and other doctors or specialists, to virtually join the appointment and collaborate on providing optimal care. Improves patient outcomes, work, conflicting commitments, and personal schedules inhibit many many patients from seeking care through traditional in-office visits. Telemedicine makes it easy and convenient for patients to stay engaged with their treatment plan and receive a stronger clinical outcome. And it can increase uh, practice revenue. Seeking more patients goes hand-in-hand with increasing revenue. By offering telemedicine, even on a limited level, physicians can be reimbursed for a number of interactions that do not actually need to have a patient present in the person. Telemedicine has grown with popularity among patients and will, in my professional opinion, be mainstream within five to ten years. New technologies and offerings such as ExamMed, Advanced MD, and Diversity Health are making it easy and safe for doctors to incorporate virtual care into their practice. While telemedicine isn't for every occasion, the traditional doctor visit is at risk. Telemedicine options uh, can be delivery of medicine that physicians uh, can take a look at and offer as a tool to complement and expand their current healthcare offerings 
or they may continue to risk losing patients to more accessible health care options online. For 2019, Medicare introduced two new HCPCS codes to the professional side of billing, G2012 and G2010. G2012 is Brief Communication Technology-Based Service. They call it a virtual check-in by a physician or other qualified healthcare professional who can report evaluation and management services provided to an established patient not originating from a related E&M service provided within the previous seven days nor leading to an E&M service or procedure within the next 24 hours or soonest available appointment. Five to 10 minutes of medical discussion has to be documented. The G2010, remote evaluation of recorded video and or images submitted by an established patient, including interpretation with follow-up with the patient within 24 business hours, not originating from an E&M service provided within the past seven days, nor leading to an E&M service in the next 24 hours or soonest available. So again, these services are limited to established patients as defined in CPT as patients who have been seen within the last three years. These particular codes do not come with the strict CMS telerules telehealth rules of originating sites being outside the metropolitan statistical area or in a rural health professional shortage area located in rural census tracts. So, for example, the patient doesn't have to live in a particular type of geographic area or go to an original site, such as a physician's office or hospital, to be able to code for it. So the rules to report either of these services are pretty simple. Patient needs to be established to the practice. Five to 10 minutes of medical discussion needs to be documented. Virtual visits cannot be related to an office visit seven days before or within 24 hours after. Patient can be calling uh, the provider from their home and place of service 11 or office is used. And the physician would need to document in the record that they do not need to come in for a follow-up visit if there is a problem. So for now, these two remote services are covered under the Medicare Part B payer, but other payers may soon follow. To read more about this expanded telehealth coverage and examples of how to use these codes, please see my article today in this week's ICD-10 Monitor. Dr. Reamer, back to you. Thanks, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Terry. And as Terry said, you can read her reporting on this very important subject in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Our lead story this morning is about the recent initiative by the National Committee for Vital Health Statistics. Now, that committee is urging CMS to make adoption of ICD-11 less of a problem than it was when the country went from I-9 to I-10. Reporting this timely story is Margaret Skirka. Margaret is a representative of the World Health Organization's Committee of the Family of International Classification, Education, and Implementation. Good morning, Margaret. Margaret, what do we know about this latest development? We know a lot based on a four-page letter that came out uh, from HHS recently, and there were two letters before that that I'm going to reference also. And there were speed bumps, and lots of them, when the U.S. worked to adopt ICD-10. There were 23 years' worth of speed bumps, and we were the last developed country in the world to adopt back in 2015. So if history repeats itself, that means we wouldn't have I-11 until the year 2042. And I think some of us listening to this broadcast today wouldn't have to worry about it much um, by that time. So the letter of February 21st came from Dr. William Stead, who is the chair of NCVHS, and it speaks to three recommendations that address near-term administrative simplification code set issues. 
Uh, and I'll go through all three of them. But prior to this letter, there were two other letters, um, both on February 13th, and those were both seven-page letters um, that Dr. Stead sent to the secretary, and they're also important. So I suggest to our listeners today that they go online and review those two letters also because they provide the good background information for for the February 22nd letter. They speak to new approaches to improving the adoption of standards, Uh, simple, uh, my term there is less red tape, and they speak to recommendations on criteria for adoption and implementation. So just go to the NCVHS website, uh, and the links are all on the um, home page uh, there. So uh, when, when, what I really want to discuss now, however, are the three recommendations from the February 21st letter. And very simply, they are, one, uh, less regulatory, two, start now, and three, separate all of this from PCS. So I have a little more to say about each of those three, three recommendations. So it's a sub-regulatory process, not a full one, because we want to treat ICD like all other named code sets um, that HIPAA has. So this is about simplifying the process. We used the full regulatory process last time. We'll handle it better with version changes going forward, not more regulations. And number two says start now. So we want a smooth plan of transition. The WHO will adopt I-11 for worldwide use um, in May of this year. So our clock starts ticking then. Do we need a clinical modification um, addition is one of the hot questions. What's the cost or benefit of developing another CM addition? What I hear at the table of those HUFIC meetings I've been attending for several years now is that other major countries that use ICD, uh, Canada, Australia, et cetera, will be encouraged not to develop modifications. So I-11 will have about 55,000 unique codes, um, and, and it is completely electronic, so hopefully that works uh, and does it for us. Uh, the third recommendation asks uh, HHS to clarify that ICD-10 PCS is completely separate from I-10, and it won't be updated. Um, with the transition. It's not a part of the plan to update 10 to 11. PCS is a U.S. product designed by CMS, and I, I question why even ICD is a part of its name, because it's the International Classification of Diseases, 10th edition um, PCS, Procedure Coding System. Um, PCS is updated every year now, and it stands on its own. We had to develop it with I-10 because WHO had retired um, its procedure coding system. Um, but going forward, it, they're not tied together. So last summer, the NCVHS invited uh, some of us from around the country to be a part of an expert roundtable. And the letter and all of this information um, that's coming out now is a result of that meeting. I was privileged to be there. And we discussed uh, processes for improvement. Um, resources are scarce everywhere and no new resources are available. And research and more all require funding. Um, we must work smarter and more efficiently, and we think now it's pretty awesome that the government agrees with that. Um, So at the meetings I've been attending, most countries are saying they are, however, four to five years out from adopting 11, um, and some countries have to deal with translations and more. But it would be terrific if we can be on pace with other major countries. So the takeaway final point is the overall goal of all of this is administrative simplification, not more complication. And hope springs eternal. Thanks, Margaret. That was Margaret Skurka. 
Margaret is a past president of the International Federation of Health Information Management Associations, and she's their representative to the World Health Organization family of international classifications, education, and implementation. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. Thank you, Margaret. And by the way, we hope Margaret can return to Talk to Tuesday following her WHO meeting taking place in Sweden early next month. And now it's time for our very popular segment here on Talk Ten Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind today? Well, Chuck, I did miss you all last week when I was at NPAC, the National Physician Advisor Conference put on by ACPA, which is the American College of Physician Advisors. I serve on the board of directors, and I'm the co-chair of the CDI committee with Tim Brundage. This was the third year that I attended ACPA's annual conference, and this year we had to cap attendance at 370 because we ran out of space. ACPA was started in 2014 by a group of physician advisors from the medical necessity utilization review case management side. In 2012, a group of CDIPAs had started an organization at the annual ACTUS conference, but we didn't really have the support to get it off the ground, so we joined forces and were incorporated into ACPA. If your physician advisor doesn't belong, they should. The annual meeting is still pretty URCM-centric, but there's a ton of interest in CDI. My committee designed CDI educational materials for the physician advisor, which we offer as a benefit to members on our website. I spoke at the conference about documentation, supporting medical necessity, and beyond. It seemed well-received. Well I was also invited to participate in the final expert panel discussion. This session is case-based and interactive. The audience votes on whether they think the patient should be observation or inpatient, then the panel votes, and then the panel discusses the salient points of each case. Of course, there are always two issues. The first is whether the condition actually warrants admission. The second is, was it documented such that it supported the appropriate status? My contribution was to add documentation and coding nuggets, and the others did the meat and potatoes meet medical necessity status discussion. I suppose it's hard for me to judge, and somewhat immodest, but I think my information was very useful for the audience. There were some excellent speakers, including, to name a few, Monitor Monday's Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Dr. Juliet Ugarte-Hopkins, Dr. Pooja Nagpal, and Tracy Field, a lawyer who talked about payer tactics denial appeals, and contract management. Ron was the first morning speaker. His session was supposed to be Physician Advisor 101 for newbies, but nearly everyone attended, and it wasn't for the Continental Breakfast. There were quite a few presentations of best practices, including Juliet sharing her experience with initiating a point-of-entry case manager, and Pooja detailing her system's ability to reduce outsourcing of statusing by setting up an internal PA moonlighting program. Dr. Beth Wolf gave an excellent presentation on palliative care and hospice, and I liked Denise Wilson's four C's of clinical validation documentation, clear, consistent, credible, and coder-friendly. If you don't attend your organization's annual conference, you should. AHIMA's annual conference, uh, convention Actus's 12th annual conference in May in Orlando, your regional conferences like OHIMA, it is so important to keep up with the current best practices and to network with colleagues. Speaking of networking, one of my favorite activities is Dine with Docs. 
Faculty and board members join ACPA members at a double Dutch dinner, getting to know one another and making connections. If you help organize a regional meeting, I strongly recommend setting up something similar. That was my news from NPAC. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Erica. That's going to be a wrap for our 361st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And, Erica, I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Fletcher, Lori Johnson, Dr. Jeffrey Lerman, our special guest today, Margaret Skirka. And I want to thank Holly Louie for sitting in last Tuesday for Dr. Erica Reamer. And I hope you're going to join me this coming Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern for an outstanding webcast, CDI in the ED, Lessons Learned from an ED physician. Of course, that would be Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can save 25 bucks when you enter the coupon code Tuesday. In the meantime, you can listen to all the Talk In Tuesday podcast anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk In Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us today. Talk In Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor. 